Take your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. We will continue our verse-by-verse study through this book. I sure am loving this study. I love that you're a congregation that, uh, you know, we don't need to pull a bigger rabbit out of a bigger hat every Sunday, but that you're hungry for God's Word. It's just a great encouragement. Writer, historian John Dixon writes in his book, Is Jesus History?, about a social media post that annoyed a lot of his atheist friends. It was a portion of a much older interview from 1929 that a writer had with Albert Einstein. And the journalist at the time was George Virek, or Virek. Uh, what annoyed them was Einstein's admiration for a historical figure found in the New Testament Gospels. Here's the portion of the interview. Virick, to what extent are you influenced by Christianity? Einstein said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Virick says, you accept the historical existence of Jesus? Einstein said, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. How different, for instance, is the impression which we receive from an account of legendary heroes of antiquity, like Theseus, the uh, mythical uh, king of, of Athens. Theseus and other heroes of his type, lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. And then Dixon writes, I literally had folks suggesting that Virick's interview itself was a fraud, even though, as I pointed out, it was published in one of the 20th century America's most widely read magazines. I had to dig it out of the archives and post screenshots of the relevant pages of the interview before some would believe that Einstein said such a thing. Such is the power of preference to shape what we believe, end quote. Hmm. Now listen, I make no claim that Einstein was a Christian, that's not the point, uh, but to shed light on the unwillingness to believe anything that's against our bias. Now to think that you're not subject to that, you're a little naive, we all are, Right? Um, but such was especially the case when Peter wrote Second Peter and was dealing with false teachers um, because they were not going to take anything that Peter had to say. It strikes me when we think about our present times that up for grabs is reality or truth. We can't even agree on what is real. Personal opinion and feelings are deemed superior to even evidence that contradicts our assumptions. I mean, all we need are a couple of websites of people who agree with us, and we consider that incontrovertible evidence, right? Denial and bias is rampant. And again, we're naive to think that we don't suffer from it as well. Consider this. It's like an addict 
in denial of a, a drug or alcohol problem. Or maybe an anorexic uh, can be grossly underweight, look at themselves in the mirror and think they're so fat. Right? Happens all the time. A person set on a particular worldview can deny that the earth is round, right? Or they, they deny the properties of what makes a male or a female. A person's ability to deny reality is indeed a powerful thing. And again, we're not just talking about the other guy. It's true of us as well. Now, imagine... The bias when you're talking about spiritual things, when you have a lot more on the line with things that, you know, dig deep down into the soul, especially when it's truth about a God who calls us to be responsible for our actions and then who calls us to, you know, humility to admit that sin is in our life and sin is a real thing. <laughs> like the false teachers many today, no thank you, rather not. I mean, your ideas of Christianity are nothing more than misinformed, and I might add stupid, people who have created a myth. This is one of the reasons why Peter writes Second Peter. Let's stand as we take a look at it. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we we're with him on the holy mountain. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, it's easy in this day to take our cues from maybe news radio. And when we think that people are speaking against us, we just want to yell louder. We want to criticize the critics. May that not be the case with us. Uh, it's not our desire to cut down other people. It's not our desire to just scream a little louder. Our desire is to love those who are against us, but to speak truth, to see reality as it is. 
and that we can humbly approach things realizing that we don't have the answer to everything. There's a lot of things we don't know. But we do believe that you have made plain to us some things about your existence and who Jesus is. And Lord, we confess that we've seen many religious folks respond in such a way that it's just not pretty. And we know that's not you, but many of the world equates how a lot of religious people have acted with what your attitude is. Help us to distinguish the difference. We believe that you exist that you reward those who seek you, you tell us in Hebrews. And it's my desire, and I believe it's your Spirit's desire, that we have a solid foundation upon which we can rest our faith. And may that be the case for my brothers and sisters today, that you'll encourage them, that they can truly see truth and that you would also help us to where we can communicate that to a world around us in a way that is understandable effective that your Holy Spirit would make us witnesses of these things that have happened in our own life and what Christ has done in us so thank you for this time together. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters. I know that there are some here who maybe are in a tough spot, maybe aren't so sure about this Christianity thing, and that's okay. May they know that they're loved, that they're welcome. No matter what spot we're in, may you teach us today, and may we receive truth from you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the false teachers branded Christianity as fake, make-believe, fiction, myth. It is used to be a bullseye for many critics. And in our day, it's, well, I should say it used to be the day in which you could say it's not like the Easter Bunny, but it has historical reality. And you could appeal to the, the properties of history to make your point. But now, with the postmodern mindset, with the way that the world has changed, particularly our culture in the last 20 or 30 years, postmodern is firmly entrenched. And no facts are considered truth. It's just your own truth. So in reality, I could accept the Easter Bunny has true for me up against any other claim. Because truth is personal, and it's nothing more. 
Now, at least that's what people say. But this all falls apart real quick when one has to deal with undeniable realities like maybe driving your car, crossing the railroad tracks, waiting for the train to go before you cross the railroad tracks, going to a store, buying real food and using real money. All of these are realities that we need to believe in, all right, and accept as true regardless of our personal feelings. And if I just go by my personal feelings and constructing reality in my own head, I may have a train in my face to show me there's another reality other than my feelings. There's no question about it that we often use our worldview when it's convenient until we are faced with these undeniable realities. Peter is saying to the believers in what is now modern-day Turkey that there is a reality that many have witnessed. He says, we made this known to you, speaking of the other apostles. Now, the other apostles of Christ saw him do all kinds of miracles in the three years that he was on the earth. And then Peter, James, and John were there during the transfiguration of Christ. Now, these were the leaders of the apostolic band, right? They were the spokespeople. They were the most respected. But they didn't make Christ up. They didn't hallucinate this thing, which would be weird that you all had the same hallucination. The chances of that happening are, are nil, right? So it wasn't myth, which usually takes hundreds of years to develop because you can't verify the facts with people that were alive at the time of the said event, right? But with Christ, Peter's audience could, if they wanted to, question people who were still alive who saw Jesus, right? They heard him. They touched him. So Peter is not a, a spin doctor here. In fact, he would eventually lose his life for testifying about the power and the glory of Christ. The Apostle Paul was in a similar position, and he said in Acts 26, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. You might underline that. It's good to know our faith is true and rational, okay? For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. I wasn't in a closet with a private vision that God gave to me, and now I'm going to give it to you with no witnesses. You know, we've seen crackpots do that, right? Peter is referring to the second coming of Christ when he says, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word that is used is the Greek word parousia. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 24, 3, 
when the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And it's used of Paul when he's in the middle of a discussion about what happens when we die. And he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then we read Paul again in Thessalonians, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, for, for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our Lord and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, that word is used of others when they go from one geographical spot to another in the New Testament, but whenever it's used of Jesus, it's always about the second coming. And the second coming is required, or excuse me, characterized by power, power. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The same word for powers is used of Jesus when he casts out demons or when he heals people that we read about in the Gospels. The point is that Jesus reserved demonstrations of his power, his first time on earth, for just appointed times. He didn't want to stir up the crowds and preempt God's plan for his final days in Jerusalem. His first time was really more characterized by suffering than anything else. However, when he comes again the second time, it will be marked by power. Power over governments, power over all mankind. To be eyewitnesses, though, of his majesty, that's a clear reference to the transfiguration of Christ, particularly when you couple it with verse 17. As eyewitnesses, they verify the historicity of the event. I mean, in a court of law, what do you ask of witnesses? You ask, what did you see? And Peter is saying, not only did I see it, but so did some of my friends. We read about this in Matthew 17. We read about it in Mark 9 and also in Luke 9, all record the same event. Now Matthew's account reads this way. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And then Peter, in verse 17, reiterates this event when he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. No question, that's the transfiguration. Whatever we think about Peter's account, I think this much is clear. He's making the point that we can trust the promise of the second coming of Christ because of the historical veracity of the transfiguration. The Father shared his honor and glory with the Son by commending him as his beloved and how pleased he was with him. I mean, you talk about the blessing from your Father. A lot has been said about the importance of having our blessing from our fathers. Now imagine this blessing from God the Father to the Son. He's beloved. He's pleased with him. So you saw glimpses of God's power at the transfiguration. And at the second coming, there will be a lot more to come. Peter says, the majestic glory of God gave his verbal attestation of the divine Jesus. Majestic glory could actually be translated mega glory. His power and glory from the Father is so much to describe in, in human terms. You can't do it in human terms is the point. And so it's majestic glory. This is the glory given to the Son. And when the Son shown is described in the three gospel accounts, the word that's used is transfigured, which could be translated metamorphous. And what it means is something on the inside is now being seen on the outside. There's some truth there. What it means is God was not shining a, a holy flashlight upon Jesus there on that mount so that it would shine on him. No, what was happening was Jesus was letting what was on the inside to be seen in all its radiance and glory. That's a powerful thing. They could see the real Jesus, at least for a moment. It was mega glorious. His entire being, his face, his clothing were all impacted by a divine showing of magnificent brightness. Now, it might seem strange that Peter is connecting the transfiguration with the second coming. But listen, Jesus himself connected those dots. In Matthew 16, 28, before the transfiguration, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The point is that all the power 
declared and manifested in the kingdom of God, that'll be displayed with a magnificence, but you see a speck of that in the transfiguration. I'm going to give you a peek of what is to come. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. Peter is testifying to this multi-sensory corroboration. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard this voice from heaven. Listen, friends, we need not be worried about critics. They've always been here. They always will be. And these critics try to discredit the authority of Scripture, the history and archaeology that point to real events and and confirm the Bible, the record of eyewitness testimony. I mean, the, the opinions of men and the claims of those who love to bandy about the word science as if that is a stamp of truth upon whatever claim comes next. These things can never remove the facts as they are. It can never alter the history that has already taken place. And this is what Peter is trying to convey to the Christians who are being charged with believing myths or affirming the truth of the second coming of Christ. You know, false teachers are doing the same thing today. They want to debunk the Christian faith, discredit Scripture. And Peter is saying to the believers that this is not some hand-me-down myth that he's describing. It's the eyewitness account of multiple people. The fact is, is that people do not like the implications of the gospel. They don't like the call of humility in admitting our sin. They don't like that a holy God holds people personally accountable. We, and I say we, the human race, does not want a God like that. I want a God who appeases me. I want a God who agrees with me. I want a God who gives me what I want. I want a God who makes me rich, fat, and happy. That's the kind of God I want. But that's not the kind of God of the Bible. It's not the true living God. So they seek to discredit Christianity. Really, the burden of proof is on those who are trying to discredit the eyewitnesses. I mean, the naked claims of the false teachers resemble the scores of people on the internet who keep reposting the same screed about the mythical Jesus. But frankly, it's just all foo-foo dust. Look it up, foo-foo in the dictionary. (laughs) It's empty. I mean, it's really worse than the conspiracy theorists today. It's one thing about a lie. You just say it over and over again, and you can get others to believe you. And then you're off to the races. 
Well, Peter uses the transfiguration to emphasize that what he's saying is true. There's, it's like an authoritative knowledge. If Jesus can be transfigured and others saw it, well, what makes you think he can't come back again? Where Jesus was transfigured, Peter calls it a holy mountain because it was visited by God. Listen, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are simply eyewitness accounts, testimonies of Jesus. Uh, similar to John, who said in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Take it from John who, who knew him, who walked with him, who was close to him. So was Peter, but John even more so. I mean, we not only have his testimony, we have the other gospel writers to testify of the life of Christ. We not only have their testimony, we have the epistles written in the New Testament. We not only have their testimony, we have extra-biblical writers and historians who confirm this Jesus who lived over 2,000 years ago. We not only have their testimony, but we have hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ. This kind of eyewitness testimony would be insurmountable in a court of law. But maybe even more compelling, we have the testimonies of hundreds here today who know him, who have walked with him for many years. They've experienced the freedom that comes when he forgives sins. Janet and I this week went to a meeting where one of our own from our congregation, was giving a testimony. And it was beautiful to hear God's grace applied to a person that had been abused, drugs, and God lifted them out of that because he's a miracle-working God. It was awesome. See, it, you might short-circuit your ability to speak to somebody, but you know what? Your story of how God has made a change in your life is a powerful thing. It's really hard to deny the person standing in front of me when I'm sharing a story, right? So don't discredit yourself about what God has done in your life. My friends, what we share about Jesus is not based upon, you know, some private vision in a closet. It's not based on an angel telling me secret things to write down in a tablet that no one else can verify. It's not based on some subjective feeling in my heart. Cue up the Disney music. Instead, my message of Jesus, the message of the Bible, is solidly based upon 
historical reality. And John and Peter were eyewitnesses. And they're saying, I saw Jesus face to face. I heard him speak. I touched him. People even touched his lifeless body before it went into the grave, and they touched his resurrected body when it came out three days later. And they had for years multiple accounts of the three years of Jesus upon the earth. It's like a repeated scientific experiment. It's done over and over again to test the facts. This is not some hallucination on the part of eager followers. This is not wishful thinking. And it's one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity. I don't claim I know every answer. I don't claim that I understand everything about the Bible. But one thing is clear. The Bible and Christianity stands as different from other religions because it has its roots in history. The facts, the physical evidence are critical to its foundation. If Jesus wasn't a real person, if he didn't rise from a real grave, your Christianity is a joke. And the, any benefit we perceive from Christianity is no more effective than your belief in the Easter Bunny or Tooth Fairy. But my dear friends, faith in Jesus Christ is corroborated by physical evidence and that evidence points to a resurrected Christ and a Savior who is worthy of our trust. Amen. Scholar Norman Geisler convincingly argued that there's more evidence that the Bible is a reliable source than there is for any other book from the ancient world. And he's right. Compare it with Homer's Iliad and the bibliographical evidence, and the New Testament blows it away. The Bible's trustworthiness has been corroborated repeatedly by archaeological discoveries and fulfilled prophecies. But still, we've got a problem. You know what some of that problem is? Is that a lot of people don't care. I'm talking about Christians. And because it's the way that they define faith. They, fa they say that faith is believing something in the absence of evidence. They'll say faith, they, they may not say it this way, but they believe this, faith is believing in something I know is not true. A lot of Christians will think this. Let me tell you, that is not biblical faith. That is not the way the Bible defines it. Let me give you a definition that might be a working definition. Faith is not belief in the absence of evidence, but rather faith can be corroborated through evidence. Okay? Now, I know there is a blind faith. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but that's not Christianity. That's not a Bible faith. Don't let yourself think that that is what the Bible is telling us. Do facts have any bearing upon our faith? Is faith void of facts? I would claim a Bible faith is not. I'm going to pick something up and put it in my hand.
Do you know what this is? No, you don't. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, what if I told you this is a full-sized automobile? Would you believe that? Of course not. Okay? That is not reasonable. So it's okay to use human reason with our faith. Okay? Um, that eliminates one option. Now, any of you who know me also know that this is not a spider in my hand. <laughs> because I stay plenty away, 30 feet at least away, from any kind of spider. The only good spider is a dead one. Okay? That's my theology of spiders. All right? So if you know me, you know that. It's not a spider. I can handle a snake, but uh, can you trust me? That's not a snake. That's not a spider. Any other guesses? Let me do something. I'm going to ask you all to close your, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Okay? I'm going to drop this object upon this wooden stool. Listen closely. Keep your eyes closed. I'll do it again. Any guesses what that is? A coin. Interesting. Okay. So, you haven't seen it, but you heard it. What if I told you, if you could trust me, it's not a ring? You've not seen it. And what if I told you, yes, it is a coin. You still have not seen it. You can open your eyes now. What do you think it is? I told you it's not a ring. You heard it. You know it's not a spider. You know it's not a car. Most of you guessed a coin. And you would be right. It's a quarter. Okay? The point is simply this. Faith has evidence. It was not blind faith. You knew some things it was not. And then you heard it. And then I told you what it was, but you still didn't see it. So even though the object is unseen, I have evidence. And I'm here to tell you that Christianity has plenty of evidence. The Bible is a verifiable historical document that has evidence of divine authorship. In addition, miracles are evidence of an unseen reality, God. We've not seen him, but can we believe him? We believe we have evidence. And my best option is the evidence that God exists and that he loves us. And God has seen fit to express to any open-minded individual the truth that he exists, and that we can know him 
through the person of Christ. Faith is merely taking a step in the direction in which the evidence is pointing. It's not the absence of evidence. And for the person who's known him for years, our faith grows. It grows in trusting God in the midst of difficulties, trusting God with our decisions. Our faith grows. And the more we know him, the more what? The more we love him. It becomes very personal. It has this factor of historical objective facts that never changes, but then it moves to something very personal and dear in enjoying this relationship we have with him. That's a biblical faith. Let's pray.